You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Well, good morning, NCC. It's good to be with you this morning. Can you believe it? We are rapidly, rapidly approaching the end of summer. It is what is happening. We had a Hall of Fame parade this weekend. We've got this week and next week, and then we are done with our summer series in First Peter. Hard to believe, right? Then we've got the church picnic, and then there's two fall series, and then basically it's Christmas time. So Merry Christmas, everybody. That's some of you, you're already there, don't lie. Some of you have already pulled the Christmas carols out, and you can smell the peppermint mochas a mile away. Um, But no, we, we really are. We've been moving, it feels like, just so, so fast through the summer. And I pray that this series has been good for you. I pray that as we have been walking through the book of First Peter, that it has been encouraging to you, that it has been challenging to you. Uh, but I believe that where God has us uh, moving into the fall and winter of this year, I believe it's going to be even better than the summer was. I just really do. Uh, I believe we have some great things in store, and I can't wait for it. So last week, we looked in First Peter chapter 4. Our executive pastor, Dave Short, walked us through what it means really to understand or to have a theology of suffering, to look at suffering from a biblical perspective, to know how to walk with others through suffering, and probably most importantly, to know how we relate to God through times of suffering and hardship and what we should do in that. And so today, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, so you can go ahead and turn there, and we are just going to tiptoe through this section at just little bits and pieces at a time to walk through it. But what you need to know is that a lot of times when we look at 1 Peter chapter 5, uh, we believe that it is this completely separate section disconnected from the first four chapters. It's not. Peter continues his thoughts in chapter 5 on the heels of, this is how you suffer well. And so in the heels of last week, understanding what suffering is, looking at how we navigate difficult times, Peter now takes a little bit of a shift in focus. And he begins to speak to church leadership. And he says, in difficult times, pastors, this is how you should lead. And then he's going to take a look at congregations. And he says, in difficult times, congregations... This is how you should respond to that leadership. And so as we look at this text together, I need you to know something. I feel a little bit of a personal tension. It feels a little bit weird to look at 1 Peter chapter 5 and for me, as one of your pastors, to say, hey guys, this is how I should lead you. And then to in turn go, and then this is how you should respond to that leadership. Right? It feels a little bit strange. And so we're just going to acknowledge from the front end of it that I love you. And that the heart in all of this is humility, as Peter's going to show us. And if ever it feels like it is not, then I am not pastoring or leading, as Peter is telling me I should lead. And so as we look at this together, know that that is the heart of it. Peter's going to outline ways in which pastors should lead and guide you as a congregation. 
He's going to look at ways that you should respond. And I need to tell you this as well, that as we look at these things, I'm just going to make a commitment up front. As one of your pastors, I commit my very best to try to do these things well. And I give you permission to tell me when I'm not. Okay? Uh, There have been seasons when I haven't done them well, and I'll apologize for that. But as we navigate this together, we come to the table, all of us, with a spirit of humility and with grace, okay? So that's where we are going today. Y'all ready? I mean, whether you are or not, we're going there, so (laughs) it's kind of what we do. All right, so chapter 5, let's begin by looking in verse 1. Peter says, So I exhort the elders among you. As a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. So Peter is speaking to elders, the visible leadership in the church, and knowing that as leaders, it begins with them. What do I mean it begins with them? Everything that Peter has talked about, everything that he has challenged us with in chapters 1 through 4 of this letter He says that elders, leaders, it is going to begin with you, and it is up to you to set the example. And so that means that the suffering that we looked at last week, where we looked at suffering and said the church will experience suffering, he says, elders, it will begin with you. And so you need to know how to navigate these things and lead the way by example. Now, before we get too far into this conversation around elders and leadership, I feel like we need to have a little bit of just verbal and word clarity, if we can, because Peter uses this word elders, and we use elders. Here at NCC, we have an elder board, and so I feel like it's helpful for us to draw some distinctions. So what does Peter mean versus how do we use that word and those kind of things? So here at the North Canton Chapel, we have a pastoral staff a ministry staff and support staff, we have three boards, our elder board, our deacon board, and our missions board, okay? Not every church operates that way, and that's completely okay, all right? But as we have examined scripture, this is the way that we believe we are called to function as a local church, and we like to say it this way. We say that NCC is staff-led, that it is elder-protected, that it is deacon-served, and missions-sent, And so I draw these distinctions showing that there are differences and we hold differences between these different groups here at NCC. But as Peter is addressing leaders in this passage, he does not draw distinction between pastoral staff or board members or things like that. He says, if you are a leader in the church, if you are a designated leader in the church, this is for you. Okay? And so he is addressing the visible leadership, and he's guiding in the visible leadership that is guiding the congregation through times of suffering, through hard, difficult times. Another important thing to note is that New Testament churches were often governed by what is called a plurality of elders. There was never just one man leading the charge, and for good reason, right? We never had an elder with sole authority, and that is why here at NCC we have a board of elders. We have other people in leadership that help lead alongside. It's why our pastoral staff leads together. It's why there's so many of us that will often teach, right? 
It's because we believe that it's not really healthy to just have one person that does everything all the time. Okay? And so again, the word that he uses here, a little bit of a quick Greek lesson for us if we can. The word he uses for these leaders is the word presbyteros, which is translated as presbyter or elder. And more than what this word translates to, what it means is very important. Because this doesn't look at a position. It looks at the heart. Often when this word is used throughout the New Testament, it is used to designate this is a leader within the church, but it always focuses on the heart and the character of that person. This is not just a, hey, you have position, and so you have authority. That's not what Peter says, and that's not what the New Testament teaches. You have shown character. You are a man that follows God. So now we will follow you, right? And so Peter also includes himself in this group of leaders. Do you notice that? In verse 1, he says, As a fellow elder, a witness of the sufferings of Christ, a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. And so Peter, in his writings and ministry, he is a key figure throughout the leadership and the expansion of the early church. But more than that, what he is saying is that, hey, church leaders, I know I'm leaning in heavy on you, and I'm telling you the suffering I just talked about is going to begin with you, just so you know, me too. And so Peter is setting an example here, going, this is not me far off saying that I don't experience this and it's just a heavy-handed thing for you. It is me going together as a fellow leader of the church I'm going to feel it, and we're in it together. And so Peter's challenge to the elders in verse 2 begins like this. He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. This word shepherd is the Greek point meno, and it literally means to shepherd or to feed specifically. And the root of this word is the word poimen, which we translate pastor, And again, this speaks less to the title of the person and more to the how or what they do. Pastor is something that someone does. It is not who they are. Does that make sense? So how do you know that a shepherd is a shepherd? They're in the field with sheep, right? How do you know a shepherd is a shepherd? They smell like sheep, right? They're with the sheep. Makes sense. You see a guy out in the field with a flock of sheep, you go, hey, that must be a shepherd. Makes sense, right? It is what he does. If he was walking around in normal everyday clothes doing his thing, you might not go, hey, this guy's a shepherd. But we know when he is with his sheep. And so as Peter ties Presbyteros and Poimeno together, we begin to see a picture of a leader that has been placed in authority by God with a heart after God for the purpose of feeding the people of God spiritually of shepherding the people of God, of caring for them. And so any time that Peter is using this word elder here, he's saying that all elders should exercise the pastoral responsibility to shepherd and care for the sheep. Shepherd the flock among you. What an interesting phrase. The flock of God among you. Why does Peter, of all people, use this phrase? Can you think of another conversation in the New Testament where Peter and sheep have deep connection? Some of you may be remembering a conversation that Peter has with Jesus 
in John chapter 21. And at the end of that passage in verse 17, Jesus said to Peter a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter is grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And so Jesus says to him, feed my sheep. Peter, go pastor. Go feed my sheep. The way that Peter is called to express his love for Jesus and his commitment to the kingdom is by feeding Jesus' sheep. And so Peter is drawing this distinction, especially in difficult times. Church leaders focus on one thing, the spiritual care of your sheep. More than anything else, point your people to Jesus. And so Peter continues, showing as he often does, that the how and the why in which something happens is often more important than it just happening, right? There are these deep roots And so verse 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Exercising oversight. So said another way, this could read, pastors, make sure the people in your charge are spiritually cared for. Teach them how to rest in and follow Jesus. Walk alongside them, watching how they grow and guiding them along the way. In difficult times... Pastors should be an example for how to navigate those times. We should walk with you through those times, giving direction for how to cling to what Peter has called this entire letter, our living hope, how to cling to Jesus. As one of your pastors, my primary role is to point you to Jesus. And if I'm not doing that, I should not be in this position. Like, fire me tomorrow. Okay. Peter continues saying that pastors should guard against three things in how they exercise oversight. Again, Peter really leans in on motive. He says pastors should guard against three things. A love of praise or of people, a love of profit, and a love of power. A love of praise, a love of profit, and a love of power. And so Peter writes that pastors should not exercise oversight under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. And so under compulsion, this is what I mean by a love of praise. Pastors shouldn't pastor just because people want them to. Pastors shouldn't pastor out of a fear of just pleasing everybody. And pastors shouldn't pastor because they enjoy people saying, hey, good job, pastor. Okay. Before my father made a 30-year career out of serving in the Army, and then another 15 as a high school ROTC teacher, when we were first talking about uh, college and kind of these things of how do you know how to make these decisions in life and where are you going to go, how do you know where God is leading you, my dad told me this story, and he said, do you know that I went to college to train to be a pastor? And I was like, no. And he said, I went to college to train to be a pastor, I did that for six months and quit. And I was like, why? Like, what, what was, I don't understand. And he said, I just, I went in to be a pastor because my mom told me I should be a pastor. And I didn't want to let my mom down. 
He said, six months in, I realized I am not cut out to be a pastor. And so he changed his major, ended up enlisting in the army, and, and on he went. But pastors must serve out of a call of God, not out of the compulsion of people. It doesn't matter if everybody tells a pastor, hey, you are a great speaker, you should really do this thing. That doesn't matter if God says no. You can be the best speaker in the world, he should shut his mouth in a pulpit if God has not called him to be there. Pastors also should not pastor for the praise of people. And I have to confess something to you. This is something that I personally have struggled with. In my role as a worship pastor, the primary method in which I lead you to Jesus can be performative, can't it? Right? And we live in a culture where we know, hey, I like that song or I don't like that song. And so this is something I have to guard my heart against. And this is not your fault. Hear, hear this. This is not me saying, hey, you do this wrong because you don't. But if I walk off stage and I don't hear anybody going, man, I love that song. I start going, man, am I valuable? Am I doing my job? Is everything okay? And I have to guard my heart in that because I am called not to pastor out of the compulsion of people. Because the reality is this, in church I love you, but my worth as a pastor does not come from whether or not you enjoyed the music. The music that we are singing is not for your enjoyment in the first place. It is a tool that we use to worship God together. If we happen to like it, then it's icing on the cake. But I cannot pastor out of a desire to gain your praise or to please you. Because if I do, my heart will not rest on the person and work of Jesus. And if I'm not resting on him, I'm not pastoring well. And Peter, writing to, a church leader, writing to church leaders that are going to go through or are in the middle of very difficult times of suffering, he knows this. He knows that when storms come, not if, but when storms come, if a pastor's heart is not resting securely on God, he will falter. He will falter. He will begin to lead out of a place of self-preservation rather than gospel proclamation. He will get angry about little things and allow negative emails to stick to his soul. He will lie awake at night questioning his calling because he has placed too much value on the praise from the mouths of people rather than the direction of the heart of God. Peter goes on. He says, pastors also should not exercise oversight for shameful gain, but instead eagerly. This doesn't need a lot of Greek here, does it? We've all unfortunately seen when a pastor loses sight of this and does this wrong, right? So it's, it's unfortunate, but some of you in this room, because of how pastors have failed in this way, anytime a pastor talks about money, you get uncomfortable, you begin to have questions about trust and where is this going and what are we doing and is everything okay? Because pastors have done this wrong. And this is one of the reasons that here, I'm really thankful that we are extremely open and honest. Every quarter we do a financial update and we just let you know, hey, here's where we are. This is how we are stewarding the resources that you have sacrificed to give. This is how we're stewarding it. I've not always been a part of places that do that. I'm thankful that we do. Pastors should not exercise oversight out of a love of shameful profit, but instead out of a desire to see kingdom treasures built up in the hearts and the lives of the people under their care. 
Peter also writes that pastors should exercise oversight in a way that is not domineering those in your charge, but by being an example to the flock. Have you ever had someone in authority over you, whether it's a boss, supervisor, whatever, and they just look at you and say, hey, you know what, just get the job done. Have you ever felt that? And, you're going, and then he's completely disconnected from the work itself, has no idea how it goes or what to do, and maybe they even put policies in place that get in the way of actually doing the job. Some of it I'm, I'm hitting way too close to home because far too many of you are chuckling. Um, but there's, right, like we know what that's like. To have someone that just says, my way or the highway. Peter is saying this should never be so with leaders in the church. This is not how we are to lead. Again, how do you know if someone is a shepherd? They smell like the sheep. They know them. A pastor cannot protect his flock from threats if he is not in the field with them. Business leader Doug Thorpe once wrote, if serving is beneath you, then leadership is beyond you. I believe that is true for pastors, but it's true for all of us. If serving is beneath you, then leadership is beyond you. And a power-hungry man that says it is my way or the highway should not be a pastor. A pastor follows the example of Jesus. And they take on the form of a servant. And they begin to wash the feet, the dirty, tired feet of his people. To shepherd the flock of God among him. And I just need to pause and say this here for us. It is likely in a room this size with as many of you and all of our different backgrounds and stories, it is likely that at some point you have sat underneath church leadership that has wronged you in one of these ways. Hopefully not here. But if that has been the case, can I just say I am sorry. I'm sorry that that was your experience and that you ever had to sit underneath a pastor that didn't do this well. Because that is not how God intended it to be. That's not how he intended pastors to lead. And so if that has been your experience, I'm sorry. But that presents to us a tension, doesn't it? There is a tension. Because often, and I know I have, we will look at pastors as the spiritual leaders. And we go, look, you can't mess up. You've got to get this thing perfect. But this is the reality, church. Pastors are not perfect. I am not perfect. Brandon is not perfect. None of our pastoral team is perfect. If we were, then we would be Jesus. And if any of us says we're Jesus, you have a whole different conversation that we got to have and get us out of here quick. Um, but no, we're not perfect. Pastors are sinful, broken human beings. We struggle with temptation and sin. We wrestle with the same cultural hot button issues that you do. We have opinions. And sometimes we choose not to share them because we know that if we do, it might distract from the purpose that we have as pastors. The purpose that we have as pastors is to point you to Jesus and to equip you to make much of him. I'm going to speak candidly just briefly about our lead pastor, Brandon. He had no idea I was saying this. He was in Guatemala when I wrote it, and he would probably kick me in my kneecaps for saying it, and that's okay. 
It is a rare gift to serve as one of your pastors on staff with Brandon Marshall. I mean that. It is a rare gift. It's a gift to be able to say that Brandon is my boss, he is my pastor, and he is my friend. You know, Brandon was our lead pastor here at NCC for about one month before a pandemic and politics shut the world down. What a time to hop in, right? I mean, if you're going to, like, choose a trajectory, that's not the on-ramp that you choose. And in that season, there were lots of opinions, opinions about everything. Like, you could pick anything, and there's a thousand opinions and different sides that you could sit on on any issue. And Brennan chose, instead of chasing issues, to point us to Jesus. And if I'm just really honest, sometimes personally that frustrated me because I wanted him to pick a side. Right? Sometimes I'd go, like, choose something. And he's like, no, we're just not going to chase that. Instead, we're going to look at Jesus because Brandon knows that the role of the shepherd is to point you to Jesus and let Jesus work out all of our opinions, right? Like, that's really the the heart of it. And so I'm really thankful for him. I'm thankful for Brandon and for his love for Jesus and for this people. And you need to know that. Your pastor loves you deeply. I've watched him weep over you. He loves this church deeply, and I'm thankful for him. It is truly one of my greatest joys in ministry to serve you as one of your pastors. It really is. To be a pastor here and to help serve you and guide you and shepherd you is a joy. But sometimes the role of a pastor can be hard. Sometimes the role of a shepherd is hard. Why? Two reasons. It's hard to be a pastor and a shepherd because sometimes, just to carry the analogy forward, sometimes sheep bite. Right? A shepherd is trying to care for a sheep that is hurt or sick, and they just bite because hurting people hurt people, and they are quick to hurt others when they really need help. Sometimes that's the case. Thankfully, not often. And sometimes it's hard to be a pastor because shepherds get it wrong. Sometimes we get it wrong. And we need time to gaze at our great shepherd. We need reminded that we need to sit at the feet of Jesus. But sometimes the requirement of the pastorate and even a good desire to love people well can become overwhelming and all-consuming. The last five years here for me have had both of those moments. Truthfully, there have been moments when I have not shepherded well and I've had to apologize. There have been moments when I have allowed seasons of my own spiritual dryness and exhaustion to impair my ability to care for you well. And if you personally in this room have been a recipient of that and I don't know it, I apologize to you. Please come tell me. Because that is not the kind of pastor I want to be. There have also been moments, again, thankfully not many, when hurting people have said and done hurtful things, and that's okay. That comes with the calling of being a shepherd. That's part of it sometimes. But this calling brings with it a heavy weight. A study from the Barna Research Group in March of 2022 
It asked in the last year how many pastors seriously considered quitting full-time ministry. 42%. Can you imagine if 42% of pastors just all at once just quit? Like when I first saw this study, it, my heart just dropped. It just dropped. And then it asked this question. It said, what reasons? So if, if the pastor said, yes, I am one of those 42% that is seriously considered quitting. The top four reasons that they gave were stress, loneliness, political division, and being unhappy with the effect the role of pastor had on their families. I would be lying to you if I said that in the last two years that question didn't rise up in my mind at some point. And I'm not going to lie to you. There were moments where it felt like no matter what decision you made, you couldn't win. There were moments when our staff got angry with one another because of stress or miscommunication. Moments when we chose suspicion instead of trust. And moments where hurtful moments and emails felt like daggers. There were moments when we disagreed on non-essential items and allowed them to boil the surface. There were moments where I felt very alone. And there were moments when I, took, when I took a look at how I was allowing the weight of ministry to affect me personally. And I was realizing that I was being a first-class jerk to my wife and girls. And I began to ask the question, wouldn't it just be easier to do something else? Is the calling worth the cost? I'd be lying to you if I said that I hadn't asked those questions. And so in those moments, this is what I did. I chose to confront first sin in my life. I said, well, one, there's no excuse to be a jerk to your wife and kids, so get it together, dude. I began to look at my own heart and my own life, confront that sin, pull back to the foundation of my identity in Christ, take a really big dose of humility, apologize to a couple of people, and remember that the one who called me to serve at this church is faithful. And in church, I need you to hear this. God so clearly, unbelievably clearly, called me and my family to you. He called us here. We weren't looking for a job. We weren't looking for a place. And God just blew open a door and brought us here. God reminded me what Peter reminds these church leaders in verse 4. He says, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. This chief shepherd is Jesus. He's telling us, leaders, remember, when it is hard to lead through difficult times, your hope is Christ. It has never stopped being him. In Hebrews 13, 20, Jesus is referred to as the great shepherd. In John 10, 11, Jesus refers to himself as the good shepherd who would lay down his life for his sheep. And Peter writes to those in leadership who are leading through times of suffering, and he reminds them when the chief shepherd appears, is the calling worth the cost? Yes. Every time. And church, I mean it when I say to you, it has not always been easy to be one of your pastors, but I also mean it even more when I say I would not trade it. I wouldn't trade it. 
Not a single hard conversation, not a single frustrated email, none of it. I love you too much. God has called me here. Unless he's got some plan I don't know about, I plan on being here for decades, so buckle up. Church, you need to know this. It is a joy. I'll say it again. It is a joy to serve alongside our pastoral staff team because they love you. They love you deeply. It's an honor to serve with them. And I ask you to pray for us. Pray for us. Because we're trying to lead you well. And sometimes we're going to mess it up and we're going to have to say we're sorry. And that's okay. Finally, in verse 5. Peter turns his focus to those who are young in the faith and to the rest of the congregation who are underneath the elders of authority. And so it's almost as if, like, if anybody's checked out up to this point, they goes, hey, remember, I am still talking to all of you. Okay? In verse 5, he says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to elders. And again, this speaks to those that are young in faith, not necessarily young in age. The word subject here is the same word that Peter uses a couple chapters earlier when he talks about the marriage relationship between husbands and wives. And he talks about this idea of mutual submission that honors Christ. And so he calls the congregation to submit to the authority of elders. And it's a submission with roots in humility, love, and grace. And so Peter says, as he continues, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Just an interesting aside, most places in Scripture where it talks about garments and clothing yourselves, it has connections to the redemptive work of Christ and our sanctification, our being made righteous by God, for God. The most notable is 2 Corinthians 5.21 where it says we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. This is what he does for us through his work on the cross. This is the great exchange, or what we would say is imputed righteousness. When God put all of our sin on Jesus on the cross, and he took all of the righteousness of Christ and puts it on us at salvation. It's the imputed righteousness of God. We are clothed in it. And scripture lets us know even more that we need this because it talks about the righteousness of our own garments. In Isaiah 64, verse 6, it compares our righteousness to filthy rags. We needed the righteousness of Jesus. And then we see also in Genesis, after Adam and Eve sinned, that one of the very first acts of grace that is shown to Adam and Eve after sin is what? God makes clothing for them. He clothes them to cover their spiritual and physical sin and nakedness. And so when we look at garments in Scripture, when this comes up, it should have us acknowledge that this has to do mostly with our heart, with our righteousness, with the way in which we are made righteous before God and by God. And so this passage could read, Christians, regarding how to grow in your righteousness before God, exercise humility in how you relate to one another as the church. Do not be prideful or arrogant. Said another way, congregation, honor your pastors by submitting to the authority God has given them. Allow them to lead you. Pray for them. Remember that they are growing in their walk with Christ just as you are. Remember that they are frightened 
just like you are. They wrestle with the tensions of culture and the world just like you do. They are not Jesus. They are imperfect people trying to point to a perfect shepherd. And then he would also say this way, pastors, shepherd your congregation. Smell like the sheep. Get to know them, love them, and guide them in grace and truth. Don't do it to please people or for shameful profit or out of power drunkenness, but in humility, point them to Jesus. And why? Why should it be done this way? Why do we operate in the spirit of humility? Peter tells us, And he actually quotes the words of King David in Psalm 138, verse 6. He says, For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so what does this mean? Again, in the context of where we're looking, it means that NCC, as one of your pastors, if I choose to not shepherd you in humility, then I am not leading you in the way God has called me to lead you. And that he is going to oppose me in that. It also means that for the congregation of NCC, if you choose to not exercise humility in the way that you relate to pastors and leaders, then you are operating in a way that is not the way God intended you to lead and for you to operate. But look at this. This is the most cool part of this whole passage. He says... When we choose humility, that God will show what? Grace. What an interesting word. What an interesting choice here. Talking in how we relate to one another. Why in the world would he bring up grace? Why is it that God would show us grace if we operate with humility? It's because he knows we're going to get it wrong. Why would he show us grace if we were going to do it perfectly? We wouldn't need it. If we were going to get the thing right and be humble with one another and never mess this thing up, never get this relationship wrong ever, why would we need grace? We wouldn't. But God knows that the church is messy. He knows that the church and that the people of God are not perfect. He knows church leaders aren't perfect and that congregants aren't perfect. He knows that in the midst of trial and suffering, we are far more quick to bristle rather than embrace and hurt rather than help. And he knows that we're going to mess it up. But when we mess it up, we are called to have hearts that are humble toward one another. And when we do, God provides grace. Grace to move forward, grace to repent, grace to say I am sorry, grace to see things from a new perspective, grace to have hard conversations, and grace for when we get all of those things wrong and then get them wrong again and again. May it be so with this local body. May it be so with us. One of the best ways to grow in our humility is to remember that without Christ, we were dead in our sin. We were unable to save ourselves. We needed a Savior, and we need to remember what he did for us. And the way that we do that is through the ordinance of the Lord's Supper or communion. 
It's reserved specifically for those who are part of the body of Christ, for those who claim Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And it's where we remember this last meal that Jesus had with his disciples, some of his closest friends, where he took bread and he broke it and said, this is my body that's going to be broken for you. And he took a cup of wine and he said, this is my blood that will be poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. And we remember this grace that is shown in the person and work of Jesus. And when we do this, that, when we remember what Jesus did for us, we should be humbled. When we think of the fact that he who knew no sin became sin for us, it should humble us. It should cause us to remember that we can't do it on our own, that we are going to mess it up. And out of great love, Jesus drew us near anyway. Going to the cross, knowing that I would pay for sin, that you would pray to be forgiven for. And you know what? You do it again. And again. And again. And I love you so much, I'll go anyway. If that doesn't humble us, we don't fully understand the weight of what Jesus accomplished. And so our deacons are going to serve us today. And I would ask that if you are not yet a Christian, that you would allow these elements to pass you by. No one's gonna judge you for that, by the way. We understand that each of us are in different spots in our understanding of who Jesus is. And if you are not ready for that, then I would understand, and everyone else will too, if you let that pass you by. But as they are passing you by, and as the deacons are passing, I would ask you this. During this time, I ask you to quietly reflect on the cross. Paying where Jesus died, paying a debt that you could not pay so that you could experience the full blessing of being a part of his church. This messy flock of God. This flock of God that runs off even though the shepherd is chasing it with a staff going, hey, come on, guys, this way. Like, no, I'm going over here. This flock of God that Jesus would say, I'm going for you. Doesn't matter how far you run. Doesn't matter if you bite. Doesn't matter that you get it wrong. I love you anyway. Me loving you has nothing to do with you. Has everything to do with me. This is our Jesus. This is our God. So as we remember him, if you are not a Christian and you would like to begin this journey, it may start with a simple prayer saying, Jesus, would you be the forgiver of my sins and the Lord and leader of my life? I don't know it all. I don't understand all the theology. I don't understand how to put it all together, but I know that I am a sinner and that you love me and you made a way for me to be forgiven. I'm following you. And if you do that, join us as a messy flock of God as we take communion together. Church, I'll say it again. It's a privilege and an honor to be one of your pastors. I would not trade it. Let us always look to Jesus. Always. All kinds of other stuff will come and go, but we will look to Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, Please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. 
If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at ncchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.